welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. We're going verse by verse through the Gospel of Luke. We now come to uh, an often difficult to understand passage. But as we walk through the chapter, we teach it and learn from it. Jesus continues his conversation with the disciples in the upper room. Toward the end of that night, this is what he said. Hear the word of God with me. Luke 22, verses 35 to 38. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it's enough. This is God's holy word. May he break its truth upon our hearts as the spirit intended in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, let me ask you a question, as I often do to begin. Over the last few years, have you uh, sensed that American attitudes toward biblical Christianity have begun to change? (laughs) Pretty easy question. Disturbing answer, right? Yeah, the answer would be, oh, yeah. American attitudes toward biblical Christianity have really begun to change. You see it in the outward cultural acceptance and willingness to engage with Christianity. Uh, you, you, you read it every year about this time when they do the cultural surveys and they do the New Year's starting stories about the, again, uh, attendance at uh, churches has dropped under the notch in our culture numerically. And then you read about the nuns, the N-O-N-E-S's, those that claim more and more in our society not to have any religious connection, not to have any spiritual convictions, uh, the growing atheistic segment in our society. But we all see and know that all around us, there's a change in resistance to biblical values that's growing in every sector and every institution in our world, right? It's driven by different pressures and belief changes regarding things like sexual identity and sexual practice, the nature of marriage. We've all seen that unfold in the great social debate in the last 20 years. Now recently, the sanctity of life and pushing the borders of control over human life to the point of birth, unborn life rather, to the point of birth. All of this really rotates around a national debate and argument about what moral truth is 
And believers stand in the forefront of that battle declaring there's a moral truth giver whom we recognize as the God of the Bible. But in the midst of that declaration, growing stacked up levels of mounting resistance and antagonism. And it seems to be progressing. This is no surprise to you. In years past, it began to be a rumble of resistance and questioning of established moral understandings and the biblical value system that Christians lived with and proclaimed. But it's gone from a subtle resisting to an open intolerance. It goes from resisting to not tolerating. And now we see it spilling over in our social experiences and professional experiences and even legal experiences, it goes from resisting to not tolerating to canceling is the current word. It's an innocent word that is coming to mean destructive things for a lot of people, many of them in our society who are biblical Christians. So yes, American attitudes toward biblical Christianity have begun to change. They have hardened, and they are hardening more. And it's been quite a shift over the last 20 years, particularly. Christian beliefs have gone in all the statistics and all the surveys from uh, a solid majority of our cultural's views to a decided minority. Christian beliefs and and biblical morality has gone from a popular position to an unpopular one. And so there's been a shift, if I could put it in a phrase, for biblical truth and those that hold it from popularity to peril. Because our society has gone from accepting to resisting to not tolerating and to canceling. There's a lot going on. There's a degression I can create a word on the fly. And Christians don't know how to respond to this, and I'm here to share with you that the Word of God has much to say about it, and this passage speaks of it. So I want you to take heart, because this has all happened before. It happened in the lives of the disciples. They went from a spiritual experience that, uh, that went the full gamut from popularity to peril, and it happened literally overnight for them and for Christ. It happened to the disciples as they saw the once popular and adored and flocked to ministry of Jesus descend in, in very short order from massive popularity to sudden peril where they would soon be running for their lives and their Lord would be imprisoned and crucified. Now this night... In this portion of scripture, I believe this is the time where Jesus told them that this was coming. And he told them why. So they they wouldn't be surprised and fall away. He follows here a pattern in his teaching and discipleship ministry with them of telling them what was to come and preparing them. So in this passage, he does tell them about a sudden shift that's going to occur, why and how to survive it. He He spoke in words that were preserved by the Holy Spirit in your Bible. And I believe they've been preserved because this warning applies to every generation of Christians in every society in history. These words have been preserved and they apply to us because every generation of disciples will sooner or later face the same spiritual peril that Jesus speaks of here. I'm going to explore it in three different ways. We're going to look at the passage and what it teaches us about, first of all, the reality of spiritual peril. Second, 
the reason for it. There is one abiding reason why the world congeals into hatred of Christ and his followers. And then the reaction to it. The disciples' reaction, which is lamentable, and the reaction of the true disciple, which they would learn eventually, which I apply to all of us. So let's walk through it together. The first thing we learn and see in the passage is that there is a great reality of spiritual peril for the Christ follower. It descended upon them that night, but it descends upon every Christ follower in every culture sooner or later. Now, this teaching, it comes from a passage that's a strange passage. And uh, it can be difficult to interpret if it's looked at on its face. But you know me, I'm a Bible expositor. That means if the, text ar- if the passage arrives, arises in a, pa- in, a, in a section or a chapter, I teach it. And we learn it. You may never have heard a, pa- in fact, a message on this particular passage. Well, welcome. <laughs> if, I may be nothing, but I'm predictable in the sense that if it's there, I'll preach it. And there's a lot here, and I, I benefited so much as a disciple from it. It is a strange passage, and it looks difficult on its face. It's got statements about swords and, 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 and all of that, and, and the, 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 the possible notion of violent resistance. But even though we look at Scripture literally as it presents itself, and we take it in, we understand it that way, Our literal interpretation as Bible teachers does allow for us to understand figures of speech. And I put before you that uh, this is a time when Jesus works in in some figures of speech as he uses the images of knapsacks and swords. And in fact, it's kind of a trail of that. That night he did it more than once. As I explored all the commentators this week, as I often do to confirm my understanding with greater minds than mine, virtually all biblical commentators look at this passage, and I mean virtually all. It was hard to find an exception. As one in which Jesus is speaking figuratively. He's using, if you will, a metaphor. It's the second metaphor in the passage. Last week, we looked at the metaphor of the devil sifting a person's life, the metaphor of, of, of weed and a sifter being violently shaken. Here Luke records another one, a metaphor of knapsacks and swords as images. What's a metaphor? Well, it's a figure of speech, the dictionary tells me, in which a word or phrase that ordinarily designates one thing is used to designate another thus making an implicit comparison. An example would be talking about a sea of troubles, not a literal sea, but the image brings forth the idea of overwhelming trouble, for example. Now, Jesus here speaks in that way, and when we understand it that way, we understand, I believe, the image and the the reality he was portraying. Stick with me. I'll explain. Now, Jesus begins with a question like he often did. It's a self-evident question. If you know anything about the history of the disciples, as we look at this thread of spiritual peril that he begins to teach, he says in verse 35, and he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? Now, what's he referring to? Well, he's going back into the high point, the heyday of his ministry some years previously as he began to preach in the region of Galilee. And you can go back in your own Bible there to Luke chapter 9 
and you can see where this happened. This was the high point, the early years, the first year and a half to two years when Christ's preaching was massively popular. Crowds came from everywhere. His healing ministry was in full bloom because that was one of the ways he was proving that he was God's son, the Messiah. His preaching ministry growing and developing as the crowds came around, but the miracles and the healings were at high pitch as he demonstrated his Messiahship. And the crowds were, were there, weren't they? By the thousands. Early in those years, Christ was the rock star of Judea and Galilee. <laughs> it was an amazing time. Everybody wanted to be around him. Everybody wanted to hear him. Everybody wanted to touch him. And whenever he went to a village, everybody wanted to receive him. People were lining up to ask him to come into their homes, to eat at their table, to teach uh, um, in their family. It was a high time. In the midst of this, because there was such a demand and God wanted the news of his son to go out even farther than the physical limitations of Christ's ministry, Christ uh, deputized, if you will, in Luke 9, 1, he called the 12 apostles and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And verse 2 says he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So he multiplied the ministry. He did this to multiply the blessing and to get the news of who he was out to more and more people by the 12 in addition to himself. But he also did it to disciple and, de and develop the apostles, to walk them into ministry, to give them a sense of what it was like to be used by God. And he said to them, as he sent them out, Luke 9, 3, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not even have two tunics. What was he telling them to do? Don't plan for your, your physical needs, your personal needs. Instead, verse 4, he says, and whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. The implication is, God's power and the popularity of my message will be all that you need. People will be more than eager to receive you into their homes and into their towns. And every need you have, it'll be taken care of. And that turned out to be true. Now, and he gives them some hint here that occasionally that would not be the case. He says, and whatever, whenever they do, wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. But it seemed to be the exception because it says in verse six, and they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. So the, the prediction of Jesus was clear. I am so popular. My message is so welcome. And my power is so, so desired that you'll have no problem finding a roof and people will well take care of you. You don't need to take anything. And so now we go back to our passage. He's bringing their minds back to those great high times. Then he says, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. So it all had... Had, had worked in that marvelous way. Well, Jesus didn't spend much time in that moment on that wonderful high time because now he shifts and he said to them in verse 36, but now. Obviously, a transition in the language and the transition into his teaching, his, his warning to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it. And likewise, a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. Now the imagery changes 
And he's communicating through that metaphorical language that you didn't have to worry about any of your personal needs then. You're going to have to worry about every one of them coming now. Things have changed is the point of his statement. But now things have changed. You see, it's now at the end of the, of the high time and we're now moving into the dark hours because Christ's miracles and Christ's ministry had blossomed in the fullness of his message and the fullness of his message had now been heard and seen and he had gone from popularity to rejection, hadn't he? It was happening quickly. But the the message of Christ and the fullness of his teaching had become understood by all of the leadership of Israel, and they not only rejected him, they targeted him. But soon even the people in Jerusalem themselves who had welcomed him four days earlier as the Messiah would discern that he was not going to be the earthly Messiah they wanted, the Messiah to change the, the world for their favor. He was a Messiah who was teaching more and more about their sin and about the fact that they could keep the law all they wanted and they would not be good enough to stand before a holy God and about the necessity of his cross and their need to deeply repent and come and trust him as the future savior. All of that message had begun to sink and land and they had become disillusioned even that night with the fact that Jesus was not going to be this earthly political king. Oh no, he's a prophet and he's calling them out for their sin. And in that uh, period of time in those days in Jerusalem, from Monday when they brought him in uh, and calling out great hosannas, by the next day, that same crowd would gather in the square and would say, crucify him. So things were rapidly going from popularity to rejection and even destruction. He knew he was targeted even that night, Judas having just left the room. So Christ is telling them, You remember the days of popularity and ease. Things have changed. Now you're in a time of peril and it will not change again. They're going to be in peril in two ways. And I think the imagery here talks about two things. The idea of the money bag and the knapsack. Talk about the fact that their personal life would now become endangered. All their personal needs, which were so easily met in the easy days, were going to be threatened. I think the imagery here talks about their personal life, and you could put it in a phrase. He was implying to them that everything related to their personal support and their very physical well-being, their comforts, their provision, their income, their daily life, was all going to become threatened. Their personal life is the first dimension And then secondly, their very physical lives would be threatened because swords would soon be lifted against them. Wasn't that prophetic? Of all the men in that circle, all but one died a martyr's death. John, the only exception. They were all to be executed violently in one way or another within 40 years of that night. John survived being boiled in oil instead. I'm not sure that's a great alternative. Christ is speaking prophetically and with these images saying, not only will your personal life become suddenly perilous, but your physical life 
If the personal life is everything related to their personal support and and well-being, their physical life is everything related to their physical safety, their physical freedom, and their very physical lives, their, their death would be in hand. Now, some would look at this passage and would would force a literal interpretation upon the, the teaching about the sword, and, and some have tried to make a case for Christian violence from this passage. Well, you could make a case for the protection of life through armed means through some other biblical passages, perhaps, particularly some Old Testament places, but most commentators believe you can't make it here. It seems clear that Jesus is speaking figuratively. He couldn't have been telling his disciples to go and arm up for a lot of reasons. There are two, basically. It, it jarringly violates the teaching of Jesus about how to respond to the attack of, of the believer by violent people. Jesus did would say later that night to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight, implying that there is an entirely different dimension of kingdom obedience that my people follow. He had taught from the beginning of his ministry in the great Sermon on the Mount, talking about the ideal disciple, talking about God's standard. Love your enemies and pray for them, he would say, and whoever strikes you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. There's a different doctrine in play in the character of the believer. But look at the very context. Peter did take him literally, and Peter had a sword under his cloak, and later that night, when Gethsemane unfolded and Judas came with the mob, we see in verse 49, when they came up to arrest Jesus and when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them, Peter, we know from Matthew's account, struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed it. Matthew tells us that Jesus then turned to Peter and said, all who take the sword will perish by the sword. That's a condemnation. And so you see, Jesus was not speaking here in in some literal sense about arming up and and with armed means resisting persecution. Oh, no. He was using it as an image saying, listen, there is going to come great threat upon your life, not just your personal life, your, your way of making a living, the way of holding body and soul together represented by the person in the knapsack, but people are going to come and they're going to threaten. They're going to bring a sword, as it were, to your very physical life because you follow me. Your physical safety is going to be threatened. Your physical freedom through imprisonment may be in the future for you. And very often, if you bear my name into the future, your very physical life will be taken. It's just going to be the way it is for my followers. And he had, of course, spoken about this in other ways in other times. But being so caught up in the moment, they hadn't heard him very well. Great persecution had always been a promise that Jesus made to his followers. If you go back just in this gospel alone, in, in the gospel of Luke, go back to chapter 9, and we'll just walk through just a couple places. This won't be on the screen, but I think just page through with me. Luke 9, later, having sent them out, and then they return. 
He strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, this is Luke 9, 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chiefs, priests, and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That's the gospel indeed. And he said to them all, if anyone would come after me, as I go to that cross and that cross has its power, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. They knew what that was. The cross was, was a commitment to follow him even to the point where I get put on one. It wasn't a light little word that say, you know, things might get tough uh, in, in the future. It might be a little tough for you to make a payday or you might have some, some, some uh, small battles to fight that will be your cross to bear. Oh, no. It's not about bearing a cross. It's about getting put on one. That's the mindset that they needed to have. He says, you want to come after me, be prepared to suffer the death I have. You pick up your cross daily. And if there comes a day when I want you to stop carrying it and get up on it, follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. He begins to teach them about the fact that spiritual peril is part of the life of a follower of the cross's message. Go to chapter 12, if you will, in Luke, and verse 4. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. He's giving them a shadow of warning that if you follow me, you're going to encounter some people who hate my message so much, they will want to take your physical life. The sword will come and its shadow into your life. Do not fear them. All they can do is take your physical life. They cannot touch your eternal future. So we see more of the farther down in chapter 12. He warned them in verse 11, and when they bring you, when they bring you, before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, when the sword's shadow comes and your physical uh, freedom is restricted and you get placed in prison, or when the law comes and your personal freedom is restricted, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So again, the warnings had always been there. It's just that that night in the upper room, he's bringing it into final focus. One more, just to, to, to round this out, in Luke 14, just walking through one gospel. In Luke 14, verses 26 to 28, Jesus said, who does, he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Again, he repeats the warning, talking about the, the peril, the relational loss that's part of the life of a, of a believer. And then he says, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? In other words, if you're going to follow me, understand what comes with me. So it had, it, it, this is a call for the believer today. This is what happens in every other country except ours when people decide to trust Jesus Christ. They really understand they're going to be going through the loss of family, the loss of friendship, the loss of profession, the loss of livelihood, the loss of income, the loss of freedom, the loss of comfort, maybe the loss of life. And so they count the cost. What he was telling them that tonight in the upper room was things are happening fast, men. 
And I want you to know that soon you'll have to count the cost. Way back in the beginning, even when he sent them out, he says, I send you out as sheep among what? Wolves. So it was simply becoming clearer. And he knew things were changing rapidly and he wanted them to be prepared. So the reality of spiritual peril is what he was describing here. And he was intimating through, through imagery that two things were going to start happening them, to them. Their personal life would become threatened and changed and their very physical life might be threatened and taken. He was giving them the warning that he had given them all through his ministry. And aren't those the twin points of persecution when you think about it? In any culture, the cultures in other countries that we read about, if we're students of persecution, I'm one. I encourage you to become one. It'll deepen your Christian life. But also, aren't they the twin points of persecution that we're seeing rise in our culture? Your personal life will be threatened and altered, whether that comes to financial or social or professional or, or whatever area of life, your personal life is going to become put into peril or taken from by a Christ-hating culture. Sooner or later, we see it happening all around the world, and it's beginning to level up here. And then your physical life. That means your physical safety, your physical freedom through imprisonment, and your very physical existence through martyrdom. It covers the spectrum Jesus taught. And I will tell you that our experience of the last 200 years in an unusual society, that because of many reasons institutionalized religious freedom, our experience has been the historic exception for the church of biblical believers all through history. You know that. It's the exception in the world today where over 200 million believers are under what the experts call severe physical and personal persecution this morning. And it will be rising here. People often ask me, is persecution coming in America? My response is always the same. Of course it is. Because the message of Christ draws it. That brings us to the second part of Christ's teaching. Now he's laid out this reality, a spiritual peril, and, and he then gives them the reason for it. Go back to our passage. So he's shaken them with these images. And then he shifts in verse 37 with an explanation, for I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. He again, in, in a sense, uses the scripture of Isaiah and the promise of Isaiah in, in, in a figurative form as well. I mean, if you're a disciple listening and this sudden shock comes, you, 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 you want to ask, why is this happening? And what in the world can we do to prevent it? Wouldn't you? And people today, they look at the darkening response of, of our society to, to the biblical message, and some of them, they're asking the wrong questions, but they're saying, well, have we gotten the message wrong? Are, are we, I mean, certainly, if we, if we understood and explained the, the, the biblical message better, everybody would want it. And we'd, we, we would see a marvelous welcoming, because I love Jesus, 
I love what he's done for me. We must be getting the message wrong. And so we tumble into the dangerous territory of beginning to tinker with the message so it becomes, it, 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 it still retains popularity. Don't go there. Others are saying, well, maybe we've got the right message, but we're, what, there must be something wrong with us. We're not winsome enough. We're, we're offensive in, in our manner of delivering this message. And we've got, we've got to recalibrate that. We've got to learn different ways of approaching and, and speaking and communicating or treating people. It must be in who we are, even our message. We're not getting the message right or, or we're not winsome enough. And none of that is true. Because you see, it's nothing that that has to do with you. It has to do with him. Because everything is wrong with him to a world that hates the cross. And this is what Jesus says here. He's saying, listen, this is all going to happen to you because you're with me. And the world looks at me as a transgressor. As an enemy, as somebody who has violated all that they hold dear. This is fascinating. The reason for spiritual peril. See, Jesus anticipates the question and he explains it. And he quotes from Isaiah 53, 12, the grandest passage of the Old Testament that talked about the coming Savior, the sacrificial Savior. And he he lifts a verse from Isaiah that says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Now, we often take that image and we say, well, he was numbered with the transgressors. Wasn't Jesus crucified between two what? Thieves. And that's partly what that prophecy would come to refer to. But there's more. I think Jesus is implying here that this prophecy was not just about who he was crucified with, but what he was crucified as. Why did they put him between two thieves? Because they viewed him as a criminal, as a transgressor, just as much as they were. So he says, I will be seen and numbered with transgressors. How could this be? Hebrews chapter 7 says that there was no one purer than Jesus. He was the pure, unstained Lamb of God in the throne room of heaven. But even in the, in, in the, the, the trial rooms later that next morning, early in the morning, when they brought all these false witnesses, none of them could agree. And the text tells us that no one could find fault with him. And yet, they ended up convicting him as a transgressor. Why? Because, you see, they had a standard of righteousness that was their own. What was their standard? That they were righteous enough. They didn't need a Savior. They were righteous enough through their religion, particularly in the Jewish context, through their keeping of the law, through their offering of sacrifices, through their moral superiority, and they already believed they were headed to heaven. And they didn't need this news about their sin and about the the, the fact that that was not good enough in the eyes of God and that the Savior needed to die on a cross for them. They had no use for a Savior. It was an offense to them that they were, it, it was an offense to their idea that they were righteous enough just the way they were. And you know what, my friend, that's never been lost in the human race. What's the great religion of man? Answer, man. <laughs> What's the greatest sin? To sin against the self-righteousness of man. 
I think Jesus is talking about the great battle that will echo throughout human history because Christ's cross calls out the sin of man. And it says you're not good enough on your own. You're not great enough on your own. Whatever religion you practice, put the entire panoply of world religions in there, whatever philosophy you believe you practice so well, whatever kind of inner moral code that you follow on your weekends when you do this good deed or go and do that volunteering, whatever it is that makes you feel that you're morally acceptable, even superior to others, and certainly when you stand before the God of the universe, he'll look at who you are and what you've done and say, of course you're welcome. That's the religion of lost man and Jesus Christ with his cross comes and calls it out as hollow and proud and false. Jesus Christ was labeled as a transgressor because that day he called them out for their sin and they'd put him on a cross for it. Their sin of depending on their own righteousness. The world hated it then in the Jewish culture. It hates it now in the secular humanist culture and it'll hate it until he comes. Later in the epistle to the Galatians, Paul would put language around this that would teach us that it's really the offense of the cross. What's the offense of the cross? You offend me by, by implicating that I am such a sinner that somebody needed to go to a cross for me. I'm not that sinner. That's our society. That was the Jewish society that condemned him. And you see, if you're with that Jesus, they'll hate you too. That's what he's saying. Soon I'll be numbered with the transgressors, not just on a hillside, but in their mind. I'm the worst transgressor because I've called out their sin. And if you're with me, they'll hate you too. So there's two things under this, two reasons for our spiritual peril as believers. First, the first is what I've just explained to you, the offense of the cross. If you're with the cross, you will be offensive. If you're getting it right. Now, if you want to do what some of these earlier believers, I just told you, modify the message so it'll be wonderfully accepted, you'll destroy, you'll, you'll deconstruct the cross. You'll take the cross out of Christianity. And you'll deliver some moral system what are moral systems? Why does our society love moral systems that, are, that claim to be Christian? Because it fits into man's pride. Give me a system. I'm good enough to be able to do any system. The cross isn't a system. The cross is a conviction that you cannot survive your sin without a Savior who died for you. So there's the offense of the cross. But secondly, here he's implying that the reason they would also have spiritual peril is because they're connected to him. I'm numbered with the transgressions, and by implication, you're, you're going to be with me. You're with me this night. If you're with me, you're going to be numbered as a transgressor too. Now, how do we see this built out in, in a different part of his teaching? And many commentators have pointed this out. There's a classic place where he had told them or would tell them that same night, John 15. You know, John 15 is another part of the conversation in the upper room. And he clarified it that same night in John 15, 18. This is worth looking at. Open your Bibles to it. I think you will see it on the screen. Jesus talks about this peril he was telling them they were heading into. And in John 15, 18, he says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. There's the connection. 
When, when you worked at that company, you worked there for 15 years and you had all kinds of friendships and you used to go out for Friday lunches or whatever, and, and everything was, was positive. In fact, it was kind of the highlight of your life to be at work as opposed to home. And then all of a sudden, somebody shares Jesus with you and you are struck by the Holy Spirit's conviction over your sin and his righteousness. You see your sin, you trust your Savior, you become revolutionized and you don't want to stop talking about Jesus and so on Friday afternoons, once in a while, instead of going out to lunch, you find another believer and you guys sit in the break room and you go through a Bible study on your phones together and you pray for the people in your office and word gets around and what happens? Suddenly things change and suddenly the temperature goes down and suddenly there's a little bit of a workplace review and there's a conversation that somebody's raised a complaint that they feel threatened by that behavior and you go on and on into that because suddenly you're not you anymore who are you you used to be bob smith everyday good guy now you're bob smith biblical christian what happened to you? Nothing happened to you. You started to be connected to somebody, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. It doesn't have an issue with you. It has an issue with him. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. It's your connection with me. Remember the word that I say to you, I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. This is the interpretation of the passage I'm teaching you out of Luke 22. Jesus is telling them, you're with me and they will be against you. And it starts rolling this night. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And there will be some that will respond to the gospel and they'll find the word of God through you and they'll change and they won't oppose you, but most will persecute you. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. And look at this. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. This goes back to the offense of the cross. Jesus explained correctly is a Christ of a cross and it's a cross, of, it's a cross of conviction about your sin and your inability to be good enough to save yourself and you must turn to him and that is the offense of the cross and it reveals human sin. Only Jesus properly preached does that and he said if I had not come and spoken to them they would not have been guilty of sin, verse 21, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they've seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. That's where the whole idea is, can't we be more winsome people? Falls apart. You can be as acceptable as, as they want you to be, but as long as you're connected with Jesus. You see, it doesn't have to have a cause. Jesus is the reason. when the helper comes, now he gives them some encouragement here. He says, this is going to be harder and harder for you because I'm going to go to heaven. I won't be physically with you anymore. But when the helper comes, who's that? That's the Holy Spirit whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who will dwell in the believer who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me. It'll be hard to speak for me in those coming days of peril, but he's going to do it through you. And you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. This will be hard for you guys. And initially you'll run, but when you come back, the Spirit will 
will give you strength and you will be my witnesses. Don't be intimidated about this. Look at verse chapter 16, verse one. I've said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. There's this pattern. When he knew they were going to face something, he warned them ahead of time so they wouldn't be surprised. What's he doing in Luke 22? Saying, listen, the time is going to come when your very physical life is going to be under threat because you're going to be labeled a transgressor just like me. He's telling them ahead of time, I don't want you to be surprised. They'll put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you, the sword of Luke 22, will think he's offering service to God. And they'll do all these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. So, dear church, 2,000 years later, we're going to head into the same peril, and his words have been preserved for you, and Jesus is literally saying to you, but I have said these things to you that when their hour comes for you, you may remember that I told them to you. Beloved church, here in this place, here in this society, here in this time, There's a reason for spiritual peril, and you can't avoid it if you're connected with Christ. So Jesus is saying in Luke 22, things have changed. The cross is the, is the flashpoint. He's basically saying, listen, you remember the great years when they were coming to me. Well, in a few hours, they'll be coming for me. Things are changing, men. You remember the times when they used to adore me and flock around me and honor me. Well, those who adored me now will come to abhor me. And because I'm with you, you'll taste it too. Even those that sang Hosanna in the highest to the son of David. When I came into this city just four days ago on the back of a donkey, I will tell you this, by tomorrow morning in Pilate's courtyard, those same people will be saying, crucify him. Things are changing. And I want you to know that because you're with me, this peril will come to you to be ready. That's the whole point of the passage in Luke 22. Things have changed. Spiritual peril is coming. It will affect both your physical, your personal life, your personal freedom, and your physical life very possibly, but I want you to be ready. If you're with me, this will come to you. That's the heart of the passage. Now, we'll wrap it up by going back to Luke 22 because there is a, a reaction here. That's the third thing what we, we see here is there's a reaction to spiritual peril. Now you would think that the disciples listening to Jesus talking about this change and this hostility that would be directed toward him would respond with some sympathy in this moment. But like me, you already know the disciples. So you know the answer to that. Would they be doing the right thing at that moment? Nah. <laughs> they look at him. And they say, look, Lord, here are two swords. Guess who missed the metaphor? <laughs> the disciples. They thought he was speaking in literal form, and they thought he wanted them to take up arms against the enemies of his kingdom. They missed the metaphor solidly. They were ready to take him on. 
as much as they thought that that's what he was saying. Then Jesus says, and he said to them, it is enough. Now some people looked at this and, and concluded that Jesus was affirming that they should have swords and that was the two they had were enough and they should be ready to go. No. Virtually every commentator, and I looked at a ton of them, concludes that what Jesus was really saying is they had missed his teaching entirely. And this was a rabbinical way of kind of closing the class by saying, enough. That's enough. Jesus was the God-man. And as a man in a human context, he would experience frustration and he would see when they just weren't getting it. And so he closes his teaching here in a way he's basically saying, enough already. Shaking his head, I can see it. You're just not getting it. It's enough talking about this. They didn't get it that night, but they would. So two things under this as we wrap it up. Obviously, part of the teaching of the passage is don't live in denial of all this like the disciples. Understand what Jesus has taught us about the fact that spiritual peril comes from connection to the Savior. And, you know, it's just easier if you accept it. Everybody's rumbling right now about changes in our world and there, there, there's fear among evangelicals and this and that. And people are trying to push back the clock or they're trying to adjust the message or they're trying to create a negotiated relationship or whatever. No, you don't alter the message or become perfectly winsome. If you're with Jesus, spiritual rejection and peril will come. And when you begin to understand it and accept it, it gets a little easier. Just take my word on that. Secondly, don't live in denial, but do live in expectation. This is more from my experience than the passage. The passage exposition is done, and they didn't get, they missed the metaphor, and Jesus kind of closes the teaching off here. But you look at the life of believers, all of them began, when they did taste persecution, you can read about it in the book of Acts, it was a shock at first, but the, the believers and these apostles quickly learned, go to Acts 4 through 6, and you'll find that they quickly learned to take this persecution and go to God with it in prayer, and it supercharged charged their spiritual experience, and they become filled with boldness and an understanding of God's power, and they become different men. So there's an expectation that when persecution comes, exactly the, the opposite experience happens. You think persecution destroys your Christian life when in actuality it deepens it and empowers it. If you've tasted opposition in your spiritual world of any kind, you know that that's what God did through you. You look back on it and you know you're stronger, you're deeper because of it. I studied the persecuted church. This week I read the story of a young man named Hanafi who is in one of the most dangerous parts of the planet for Christianity, Niger. And Niger, you might call it, northern section of Africa, thoroughly dominated by radical Islam. His life is in danger. He he in the early years of his Christian life after he found the Lord, he just ran and went from region to region to try and outrun those that wanted to take his life. But then he made a decision 
that he was just going to accept that this is a reality and he was going to make himself the boldest witness for Jesus in that culture that he could. And so instead of just dressing in normal clothing to, to blend into the population, he bought the brightest clothing he could find. And instead of wearing typical Muslim outer garb, he bought the biggest wooden cross he could find and he hung it around his neck and he lived openly and he lives openly today as a living witness. He says, I don't know how long I'll live, but they're going to hear about Jesus. I've just accepted this. And in the, in the, the account that I read of him, he said this, quote, the more you're persecuted, the stronger you'll be in Jesus. Today in our society, we can academically read that, but we can be encouraged by the fact that millions of our brothers and sisters will tell us that that is true. What's the blessing in it? What can you expect? One more passage. Matthew 5. Matthew 5, 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Who said you'll be blessed? the number one authority on spiritual reality, Jesus. Blessed are you when others revile you, that's your personal life, and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. That's your professional life, maybe your economic life, certainly your social life, probably your family life. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When you understand it and you begin to go through it, there's a blessing that's hidden in the middle of it. Some believers in darkest parts of the world actually pursue persecution. When you study it and you've been out there, you'll meet them. And I have. They actually want more persecution because they find him in it. The Chinese president has made a new commitment to exterminate the house churches in China. A hundred million believers meeting in house churches. And they are suffering like never before. But there is a, a saying among the believers in the Chinese house churches, am I in enough trouble for Jesus today? What? Can you imagine greeting each other when you've again gathered in, in the darkness and there's three other believers in your house church that have made it to the meeting and you greet we, uh, each, uh, each other possibly saying, are you in enough trouble for Jesus today? What's that all about? It's about the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised in John 16, 1, rising up in you in the midst of spiritual peril and showing his greatness in your life. You say, I can't imagine such things. Well, they're simply believers in peril, and they've got the Holy Spirit within them. Are we going to be believers in peril sometime soon? Yes. Who will be with us? So that night, long ago, Jesus had to break the news to the disciples that because of the message of the cross, things were going to drastically change from comfort to peril. They weren't ready. 
And things have only gotten worse since then. You know that the scripture says that evil men wax worse and worse, the Bible says. Human wickedness is on a descending cycle. It's going to get worse still. And Someone whom I've read from time to time who knew persecution, Richard Wormbrand, maybe the name's familiar, he was in prison in communist Romania for his faith in the 1960s and 50s. And he founded an organization called the Voice of the Martyrs. He's in heaven now. My, my word, what a welcome that must have been. But he wrote this 20 years ago. He said, the earth turns on its axis. And midnight is the moment when, when a part of the earth is the farthest away from the sun. Spiritual midnight is the period of the greatest departure of men from God. We are approaching this midnight. Biblically, he's absolutely right. Experientially, we'll soon say he was absolutely right. So how ready are you? How ready am I? To see income, profession, family relationships, personal rights, personal freedom, or even personal life in peril for Christ. Hard for me to answer that question. Maybe we all need to do some thinking and some preparing and some drawing nearer to the one who did say, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. 